Jesus. There's room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also pour out love by serving others. This is our seven of eight weeks studying the life of King David. We're wrapping this up next week. Uh, King David is one of the central figures of the Old Testament. That's the part of the Bible that predates the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so whether you are uh, exploring the Christian faith or you are actively following Christ, let's continue to jump in together and study the life of this central uh, biblical figure, King David. Well, before I had... Uh, kids, I was an expert at parenting. Now, now I have young kids, and so I'm an expert at parenting teenagers. And so a buddy of mine's son is starting to drive, and so I gave him a little advice, you know, about driving to help his son. I said, buy your kid accident forgiveness, and then tell him to drive as recklessly as they want to. No, I didn't tell him that. That's horrible advice. Because, yes, the accident would be forgiven, but still, you know, you, who knows what harm you can do to mailboxes, to cars parked on the side of the road, whatever the case may be. Accident forgiveness will forgive the, the accident, uh, but it doesn't reattach the mailbox. So I bring this up simply to say, if we're not careful, you and I may actually start to live that way. We may start to live uh, this way. Find forgiveness, get forgiveness, and then live as recklessly as you want to. Get forgiveness and then live as recklessly as you want to. We, we may encourage, knowing or unknowingly, the people who look to us as a, as a trusted guide of how to reconnect to God, we may accidentally con or on purpose convey to them, man, get forgiveness and then live as recklessly as you want to. The Bible, believe it or not, says something very different than that. The Scripture teaches this in Galatians 6, 7. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A woman reaps what she sows. And the verse is pointing out we can be deceived about this. It would be possible for a Christian, if you're a Christian or if you ever become a Christian, it would be possible for a Christian to misinterpret forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a beautiful thing. I ended last week's sermon by saying forgiveness is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing, that our rebellion against God, what the Bible calls sin, our rebellion against God separates us from God. It separates us from the abundant and everlasting life that God wants for us. But the grace of God, the gift of God is Jesus Christ. God come to earth who lived and who died and who resurrected so that you and I can live forever free and forgiven. We can live forever in a reconciled relationship with God. The point being, you don't have to live with guilt. You don't have to live with shame. You and I can look into the deep and compassionate eyes of Jesus and hear him say those words deep in our soul, you are forgiven. And don't be deceived. Christians are forgiven people who still have to deal with the consequences of our actions and our sin and others' actions and others' sins. 
Christians are forgiven people, forgiven in Jesus' name, and forgiven as a state of being. Not something you fall in and out of. Forgiven as a state of being, something that you did not earn, you don't deserve, and thus you cannot lose. Forgiveness as a state of being, and yet we still live smack dab in the middle of real life. So all this gets us back to the life of King David. If you have missed any of the previous sermons, you can hear them all uh, on the church website, but I'll give you a little bit of a refresher uh, of where we ended off last time, sort of a last time on the life of King David. In our most recent Welcome 101 class, we had two people in it who, who their professional job is they do voiceovers. So I'm going to ask one of them to come up and do this next time. Next, last time on the life of King David, that thing. So King David had lived a very uh, good life, but his life started to come unraveled. We watched a life of wonderful highlights suffer a defining failure, and the failure is that David's on the roof of his palace. He sees a beautiful lady named Bathsheba. He invites her over to the palace. Bathsheba becomes pregnant with David's child. David gets her husband, Uriah, who's a military man, to come back from the front lines. He, he tries to convince him to spend some time with his wife. He refuses, so David gets him drunk tries to get him to spend time with his wife, he refuses. So David spends, sends Uriah back to the front lines and tells his commanding officer to put Uriah in harm's way. Uriah is killed, and then David brings Bathsheba into the palace to be his wife. Now, we can say it pretty quickly, but realize this is playing out over the course of almost a year. Over the course of almost a year, this was the subject of all the whisper conversations in Jerusalem. Hey, I know I shouldn't tell you about this, but do you know what's going on? And then the prophet Nathan is go, goes to the king and tells him that what he did was wrong. Do you remember what he said to him if you were here last week? He said, you are the man. And it was not a compliment. You are the man. His words made David snap out of it. His words made David become overcome with remorse at what, he's, what he'd done. He was truly sorry. You may remember what he said, I have sinned against the Lord. So he's truly sorry. He acknowledges he is truly sorry. And the prophet Nathan tells him, you are forgiven by God. Great. He's forgiven. So now everything can go back to being like it was before. Everything can go back and be hunky-dory. Don't be deceived. <laughs> you reap what you sow. Forgiveness is real. God's grace is real. And so is the truth that you reap what you sow. Hosea 8.7 says this. This is sort of my interpretive verse for the whole sermon today. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. This is what's about to happen in the life of King David. All the deception, all the adultery, all the murder that he modeled over the past year is about to bloom in the life of his kids. Because remember, over the course of that year, his family is watching all this. His kids, who would have been young adults or adult children, his kids are watching this. 
Bathsheba visits the palace. Her husband mysteriously dies in the, in the battle. Bathsheba now comes to live in the palace. David's kids saw all this. David's kids realized that in our family, we do things God's way, unless we don't want to. They learned that they had power. They were in charge, and it's fun to have power. And with power, you can get people to do what you want. So David has sowed the wind, and he's about to reap the whirlwind. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is he is forgiven for sowing the wind. This is not a question of whether God loves him, whether God is forgiving him. He is forgiven for sowing the wind, but that does not keep him from having to reap the whirlwind. Does the the distinction make sense there? Forgiven and yet still smack dab in the middle of real life. So here's what happens. It's not pretty, by the way. If you were hoping for a holding little lamb sermon, this ain't it. David has a son named Amnon. Amnon devises a plan to win over his half-sister Tamar. When the plan does not work, Amnon rapes Tamar. Tamar tells her brother Absalom. These are all David's kids. Tamar tells her brother Absalom about it. Absalom is rightly angry, but then that anger becomes hatred. He stops speaking to his half-brother Amnon. Two years later, Amnon is drunk, and Absalom tells some men to go kill his half-brother Amnon. Where are they learning all this, by the way? (laughs) You see how the things that David had sowed start to play out in the life of his family? They watched this for a year. Absalom then realizes he likes being in charge. He gets a little drunk on power, telling the guys to go kill his half-brother. That was kind of fun. They obeyed me. He then realizes it would be really fun to be the king. So he decides to overthrow his father, King David. And that gets us to the passage that Reese read for us earlier. I feel you're getting a little nervous that we hadn't made it to the passage for the day yet. But we're there now. In that passage, we watch Absalom's revolution starting to take shape. 2 Samuel 15, 11 says this, 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. So Absalom is starting to hatch his plan for revolt. He likes being in charge, he realizes. He wants to be the king. And we learn that hundreds of well-meaning, innocent people got naively caught up in what he was doing. They did not catch on that what he was actually trying to do was overthrow their king. Now, this is not necessarily the major point of my sermon. The major point of the sermon is about David and Absalom and living in the whirlwind, how the whirlwind of David's life played out in the lives of his children and how he had to deal with that. But I do want to just as we walk through this passage, also encourage you to watch how Absalom launched his revolution because he managed to dupe hundreds of naive but very well-meaning people in the process. And we'd be smart to look at this because it would be possible for there to be modern-day Absaloms to come our way. They could be intellectual leaders, religious leaders, political leaders, whatever the case may be. The playbook hasn't changed all that much. 
My last little note is I would, be, I, would, I would be cautious of only thinking people who disagree with you are the people who use this playbook. Absalom can, can play for any team, right? So just watch how this plays out. This is Absalom. This is the reaping the whirlwind. Absalom trying to overthrow his father. Verse 1, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. In other words, Absalom has decided to look the part. Now, the Bible tells us he had this like long, wavy hair. He was a very uh, elegant-looking person. He had long, wavy hair. Now he has long, wavy hair, a chariot, some horses, and a following. He looks the part. And he stands in a very, he gets up very early and stands in a prominent place in order to be seen. This is about appearances. He, he's standing there. He's looking kingly. And then someone would come to share a concern with King David. And this is what Absalom would do. Verse 3, Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. So how do you lead a revolt? Step one, exploit people's fears. This is what Absalom does. He reiterates to each person coming for the king's help, you are right. You're 100% right. The problem is the king is never going to hear you. Now, it doesn't matter if that's true or not, right? Absalom is creating a view of reality, and then he's handing it to person after person after person. And he he does it in a way that he puts the person on the moral high ground. You're right. You're 100% right. Moral high ground. And in a way that would make them resent the person he's trying to overthrow. But the king will never hear you. Verse 4, Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that they receive justice. So Absalom's created the crisis by saying no one will listen to you. Then he diagnoses the crisis by saying, and you're 100% right. It's just a shame nobody will listen. And then he actually solves the crisis. So he creates the crisis, diagnoses the crisis, and solves the crisis. Who does he propose to solve? What is the solution to the crisis? Himself, Absalom, is the solution. Not like trusting God or something good to say at church. Absalom is uniquely qualified to do this. He actually says that if he were the judge, everyone would receive justice. Wow. He would listen to everyone. He must have more time in his day than I do to be able to listen to everyone. These are big promises. This is quite a guy. The question is, why didn't people see through Absalom? Right, in retrospect, we know he was trying to launch a revolution, and we can kind of see through some of his shenanigans. Why didn't people in the moment see through his his shenanigans? Well, I think in part because he looked the part. And we can get caught up on external stuff, can't we? This is one of the major themes of the life of King David, that that human beings look at the external, but God looks at the heart. That's actually from the story, the account where David was called to be king. I think another reason that uh, 
people fell for Absalom is he told us what we wanted to hear. He told people, you are 100% right. I feel known. You know, I'm 100% right. Yeah, I agree with you. So I think he played to people's pride a little bit there, that they were right. But I also think he played to a need deep in our souls. He promised people a world without struggle. And in fact, Christians believe that is what's going to happen. But it's not going to happen on this earth. It's going to happen in eternity with God. And it's not going to be Absalom who ushers it in. It's going to be Jesus who ushers it in. And yet he played to something deep in our souls, a desire for a world without struggle that he alone could usher, could usher in. He got it almost right. <laughs> but it's Jesus who ushers in the world without struggle. And that, str- that world is not this earth, but eternity to come. Verses 5 and 6. So whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. I, we acted this scene out at 8.15, but it didn't go very well, so I'm going to forgo that this time. <laughs> Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom stole the hearts of the people, literally kissing up to them. And the Bible says that he did this for years. This wasn't just like a one-month thing. He stood in that spot day after day for years stealing people's hearts, one heart at a time. Then he asked King David for permission to go worship God at Hebron, but he's not really going there to worship God. He's going to get to Hebron and do what? Launch the revolution. And there's some interpreters who say that by this point, King David was just worn out by the whirlwind and that he was becoming more passive on things he should have been a little bit more active about. And I think that's a pretty fair, fair interpretation. So Absalom goes to Hebron. His followers blow some trumpets. And then people throughout the land yell, Absalom is king in Hebron. And this is when King David realizes he's got a problem. He has sowed the wind and he is reaping the whirlwind. And the passage ends by saying, and so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So some years later, one of David's other sons, Solomon, led a wisdom renaissance movement in the nation of Israel. There are multiple books of the Bible that came out of this wisdom movement. One of those books is called Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I wonder if this wasn't one of the insights David and Solomon and the people of Israel took away from Absalom's conspiracy. An enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, be wise, be discerning about people who are always kissing up to you. Be wise, be discerning about people who could criticize folks who are out of the room, but only say wonderful things about people who are in the room. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. That was last week. That was Nathan the prophet. Wounds from a friend could be trusted, 
but David's enemy, sadly his own son, multiplied kisses. And the rebellion did gain strength. The whirlwind picked up steam, and eventually David actually had to flee Jerusalem because Absalom and his army marched on Jerusalem. Absalom set up a tent on the roof of the palace, that same roof where David saw Bathsheba all those years ago. He invited the women of the kingdom to come visit him in the tent. It it became a very sordid affair. David, after retreating out of Jerusalem, was able to amass the support he needed. He was able to stop the rebellion. But this is the marching orders he gave his leaders. He told them, stop the rebellion, but don't hurt Absalom. How would you like to be that military leader? Get that that, uh, marching order. Stop the rebellion, but don't hurt the leader of the rebellion. Do you see how this is like tangled up King David? Do you feel the weight of this? in his life, in the life of the whole nation? What are we going to do about this? Now the whole nation is caught up in the whirlwind. The truth is, some of us know firsthand what it's like to love and want to protect a rebellious child, maybe even against our better judgment sometimes. King David knows that. The word came back to David that the rebellion was being stopped, that peace was soon returned to the kingdom. But David didn't care about all that. David wanted to know one question. What was his question? Where's Absalom? How's Absalom? And the answer would be good news if you were the king, but terrible news if you were Absalom's father, and David is both. Absalom was killed. And so you get one of the saddest scenes in the whole Bible 2 Samuel 18, 33, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So for the second week in a row, you realize this is not like a Hallmark movie sermon. Usually the sermons are a little more Hallmark movie, and we'll get back to those. And uh, but this last sermon, this one and the one last week, have not been Hallmark movie sermons. Well, this doesn't all wrap up nicely at the end somehow. That turned out Absalom really wasn't dead, and he was really sorry about everything. And nope. But in some ways, that's really refreshing to me because our lives are not always Hallmark movie lives, are they? Not every chapter is a Hallmark movie chapter. And we're not promised that they're going to be. If we follow Jesus, we are forgiven, and we still have to live in the whirlwind. We still have to deal with our actions and our inactions and other people's actions and other people's inaction. And the Bible is not a stranger to that reality. King David is not a stranger to that reality. But the good news is that Jesus is not a stranger to that reality. Jesus, though, is not overpowered by the suffering of the world. 
Jesus is also launching a revolution, but it's a revolution built on forgiveness and purpose. It's a revolution where mercy triumphs, in which love wins the day. And Jesus invites people, and Jesus invites you to join in this revolution, to come to Him, to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God, and then to be transformed to become more like Him. Jesus is bringing together this revolution made up of forgiven people living as redemptively as possible. The Christian faith is not get forgiveness and then live as recklessly as possible. It is get forgiveness, join Jesus' revolution, and live as redemptively as possible. But we don't do that with our own strength. We do that through Jesus' strength. We do that through Jesus' grace alone, and this invitation is for you, and it's for me, and it's for the people we know, and it's for the people we love, and it's for the people we don't know, and it's for the people we don't love. God's arms are open wide. And as you learn more about Jesus, as you investigate Jesus, as you grow closer to Jesus, as you help one more person grow closer to Jesus, you need to be prepared. I need to be prepared. Jesus does not just kiss babies and hug little lambs. Jesus says some hard things in the Bible. Jesus asks some hard things of each of us. I don't want you to be discouraged when you realize Jesus says and asks some hard things. I don't want the one more the people that you help guide towards God. I don't want them to be discouraged when they learn that. Absalom built a failed revolution by kissing up to people. Jesus is building an eternal revolution by being a friend whose wounds can be trusted. Jesus is building an eternal revolution by being a friend whose wounds can be trusted. In fact, being a friend whose wounds will make us whole. Jesus taught his disciples this in John 16. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Have you ever seen one of those books that's like a hundred promises from the Bible? And it's real like, it's got a little like glittery on the front or a hundred promises of Jesus. Here you go. Here's a promise from the Bible. In this world, you will have trouble. Congratulations. You see why they don't let me edit those volumes at all? You'd open it up to page one, promises of the Bible. In this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues, but take heart. I have overcome the world. God's grace does not mean there will be no clouds in the sky. God's grace does not mean there will be no clouds in the sky. God's grace means that you and I have someone to stand with us as we withstand the storm. God's grace means we have someone who will stand with us even in the most destructive of storms. We see this in the life of King David. God was with him through all of this. God's grace was with him through all of this, and he lived through the whirlwind. God's grace did not mean he he got to escape the whirlwind. God's grace was with him as he lived through the whirlwind, and he lived through the whirlwind. He lost children. 
His family crumbled before his eyes. He saw years of good decisions get unraveled by a year of bad decisions. He loved his rebellious child until the end, and then he grieved alone for that child because no one else around him was sad he had died. God's grace did not eliminate that hard road. God's grace did not eliminate the hard road. God's grace gave him a companion to walk the hard road. God's grace gave him a strength to walk the hard road. My point being that Jesus in His grace forgives us of the eternal consequences of sin. Jesus in His grace forgives us of the eternal consequences of sin, accident forgiveness, and strengthens us as we endure the earthly consequences of sin whether it be ours or others. Jesus forgives us. Christians are forgiven as a state of being, but it doesn't deliver us from the whirlwind. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. It's a promise from the Bible. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, be of good cheer, don't give up. Don't give in. Everything's not lost. Jesus has overcome the world. And you and I can live lives that point people to the power that Jesus has. But that power is not always shown in how Jesus gets us around the consequences of things. Often that power is shown with how Jesus helps us walk through the consequences of things how He strengthens us as we walk a hard road, how He doesn't abandon us as we walk a hard road. Just because you're going through the whirlwind today doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Maybe God's grace is a little different than you and I think. Maybe God's grace is not always the get-out-of-jail-free card. Maybe God's grace is the thing that helps you sing while you're in jail sometimes. And you and I can be a witness, an example to the people around us who will say, it, must, it could only be God that would help them walk through that situation. It would only be God that would help them be forgiving in that moment. It could only be God that's the reason they're standing right now, or that they haven't become totally embittered by this. That must be the work of God. So my question for you, as I sort of wrap up, would be this. What is God showing you through the account of Absalom and David? What is God showing you through the account of Absalom and David? And your first thought may be, man, my family's not as messed up as I thought. And that may be true. But try to go, try, try to go the next level down from that. <laughs> what is God teaching you? through the account of Absalom and David. Ultimately, I hope you think of this sermon as a sermon about God's grace. But not God's grace in the Hallmark movie sense, not God's grace in the Oliver Twist sense. Some chapters are like that, and everything turns out beautiful at the, in the end of the chapter. But this is a sermon about God's grace in the gritty sense. 
The, the sense that Jesus strengthens you to help you walk the hard road. He doesn't abandon you on the hard road. And that you see and show the power of God through your life. And sometimes, some days, you just wake up and put one foot in front of the other. And if it had not been for God, if it had not been for God. And praise God, His grace is grittier than we sometimes think it is. Sometimes I think we imagine God just likes sitting on the beach, you know, drinking nice things, happy things, holding the lambs, kissing the babies. That's God's stuff. God is with you in the midst of whatever you're going through. No matter how awful or ugly it is, He stayed with David through the midst of all this stuff. He will be with you through the midst of whatever you're going through too. So let's pray together. We're about to have a time of prayer. Before we do that, I'll just remind you there will be people at the prayer station uh, during these songs and after the service if you would like to pray with somebody. But in this moment, just take a time for personal prayer to talk to God or to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up inside of you. Lord, I thank you for our congregation.